0: Hey, everybody. Good morning. Good to see you guys. Glad you're here. Uh, it is an on- My name's Chris, and uh, it is an honor to be back with you guys. Uh, I always love being here. Your hospitality is just so incredible, and uh, I'm so thankful for it. Yeah, I hope that's for you, not for me. Thank you. Um, And your hospitality is so amazing. Love you guys so much. Uh, Also, if you're watching online right now, worshiping with us, thank you for being here as well. I just want to say this. I was thinking about how much I love you guys and how much it feels like home here every time I'm here. And it reminded me of a story I heard a few years ago about a young pastor um, who had gone away to seminary. And uh, his church had helped him go. They'd supported him in prayer and they'd helped fund his seminary. He went to Yale Divinity School. And uh, when he graduated from seminary, he got the opportunity to come back home to preach his first sermon in his home church. And he wanted to honor them so much because it felt so much like home to him and he felt so loved by them that he decided to, to make the four points of his sermon an acrostic based on Yale, Y A L E. And so point number one started with Y and A and L E and so on. And so he'd preached about 30, maybe 40 minutes and he had just gotten to the L. And about that time, though, uh, this older gentleman in the church comes up and just kneels at the altar and starts to pray. And he's like, wow, the Lord. Lord, it's moving in my sermon. He has anointed me for this ministry. I'm so excited about this. And so he continued to preach and finished his L and finished his E and had his little poem at the end and uh, wrapped his sermon up. And at the end of the service, he went up to this gentleman that had stayed and prayed through the whole rest of the service and he said, hey, uh, I, just, is there something going on in your life that I can pray for you about? You know, in seminary, they taught me how to pray with brothers and sisters in crisis. And he said, oh, no, 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 no crisis at all. He said, uh, there's nothing you can pray with me about. No big deal. He said, I was just thanking the Lord. And he said, oh, wow, cool. What, what were you thanking the Lord about? I'd love to, you know, go before the Lord in Thanksgiving with you. And he said, man, he said, as long as that sermon was, I was just thanking the Lord you didn't graduate from Mississippi State. And so, <laughs> <laughs> so, uh Neither did I, that's the good news for you guys, and but much like that pastor I do feel at home here and I'm so thankful for you having me back so Romans 7 is where we're gonna look today if you have your Bible you can go ahead and grab it and open there if you didn't bring a Bible with you I'm gonna have the verses on the screen so you can follow along that way now while you're turning there let me ask you a question how many of you have heard the story of dr. Jekyll and mr. Hyde anybody heard that story yeah probably most of us here and online have heard dr. Jekyll and mr. Hyde uh, but for those of you who haven't let me just give you a summary of the story okay So uh, Robert Louis Stevenson wrote this story of Dr. Jekyll, who was a chemist. And Dr. Jekyll was a very upstanding man, like a man of character, Um, always loved to do the right thing. But he would constantly be frustrated because he said, it seemed like as much as I want to do and try to do the right things, it seems like I just can't always. And as hard as I try, sometimes evil just creeps in and I feel like it's keeping me from reaching my max Potential and all I've been made to be. And so he, being a chemist, decided to take matters into his own hands. And so he created this potion that would separate the good part of him from the evil part of him. And the evil part of him he called Mr. Hyde because of how hideous. Uh, he was and how hideous he saw himself. But what happened, as the story goes, is that the bad parts of him, the Mr. Hyde parts, just continued to stir up worse and worse and worse. And actually, they ended up taking over the good parts of him to the point that Mr. Hyde ended up taking the life of Dr. Jekyll in the story. Now, Here's why I tell you that story to to kick this sermon off. And we're wrapping up this series today. I'll tell you more about that in a second. Uh, It's a perfect segue into the sermon today um, that we're going to talk about. Now, I just wonder, though, as we get going, is there anybody here who can in any way relate to Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde? And and I hope you can. I think you can, because I certainly can myself. Uh, In fact, not long ago, I walked up on a couple of my kids. I have an 18-year-old, a 16-year-old, and... Next month, we'll be 13 years uh, old, uh, my son. And so uh, I walked up on my two older kids uh, talking about me. And I just happened to sneak in, and they didn't even know I was in the room. <laughs> oh. <laughs> and uh, they, I happened to sneak into the room, and, and they didn't hear me enter. And so I was just kind of standing listening. And my daughter, who's 16, said to my son, who's 18, I hate it when dad's like this. And I was like, oh, you know, and so they, when my, my son was in, was like, yeah, I do too. I hate it when dad gets like this. He just, oh, and, and then I couldn't really hear what they said. But what they were referring to was a moment earlier that day when I had been overly aggressive with my kids. I was stressed out. I don't even remember this scenario, but I was just overly aggressive to my kids. And I, and I can tell you, maybe you've experienced something like that before if you haven't. It was heart-wrenching for me to hear my kids say that. I hate it when dad's like this. What I heard in that moment was how the Mr. Hyde part of me reared its ugly head. And I don't know if you are anything like me, but sometimes even with my words, like though I I really want to love my kids and my wife well and the people close to me well, sometimes it seems like they get the worst parts of me, right? I'll, I'll talk to them worse and more aggressively than I would talk to somebody else. And, Maybe you're like that too. And then Mr. Hyde, though, as much as you want the Dr. Jekyll side of us, the good side of us, the things we want to do to, to make their way into every part of our lives, often the Mr. Hyde part sneaks in at times we don't even expect him to and, and want him to. Maybe you can relate to that. Maybe you're a follower of Jesus and, uh, and you go, man, I, I really am trying to honor the Lord with my life, but it seems like as hard as I try to share the gospel with my friends, As hard as I try, as much as I want to invite them to church, I can just never get around to it. What you're saying is Mr. Hyde's overcoming Dr. Jekyll sometimes in your life. Uh, Maybe you're a student and you go, man, I really want to honor the Lord with my life. Like I'm, I'm committed to the Lord in this tough season of my life, but as hard as I try, this nagging sin just, it just kind of keeps sneaking into my life. And no matter how hard I try, I just can't eradicate it from my life. Maybe you can relate to that. Maybe you're somebody who's here and you're not yet a follower of Jesus. And you're here because you know that the Mr. Hyde of you sneaks in all the time. Maybe the Mr. Hyde of you snuck in last night and uh, you know, down on, on Broadway or whatever it is and, and uh, m- maybe you're here and you are going, man, the reason I'm in church is because I'm trying to outnumber the Mr. Hyde parts of me with more Dr. Jekyll-y parts of me and I want to do the right things. And you thought if I can just come to church more and I can do the right stuff and get rid of the wrong stuff, then that'll make God happy with me. I can fix myself. If I come to church, man, if that's you, we're so glad you're here today. You are in the right place, because this is what we're going to talk about. Um, If you can relate to any of that, I'm so glad you came today. I think you can, because I think all of us could say that there's a gap between where we are and where we really want to be. Like for real, like none of us would say to ours, man, we have arrived. There's a gap in all of us, right? And uh, where we we really want to be. And so today, we're going to talk about um, the last... Uh, name of God in this series. We're tying a bow in this series today that you guys have been in for the last uh, several weeks. By the way, have y'all enjoyed this series? It's been a really good, really good series, and I've, when I haven't been able to be here, I've watched online, and um, man, here's the thing. Uh, we're tying a bow in this series today, talking about the name of God, Jehovah Mkadesh. Jehovah M- Kadesh, M- and that's a, a Hebrew word that literally means the Lord who sanctifies. The Lord who sanctifies. Now, if the word sanctifies is a new word to you because you're not like a churchy God person, the word sanctifies literally means to be made holy, okay? And so Jehovah Imkodesh in Hebrew literally means the Lord who makes us holy, The Lord who makes us holy. And to take a look at this, we're going to look at Romans chapter 7. And we're going to see Paul talk about this concept. And then at the end of the passage and end of the sermon, I want to take you to a place in the book of Leviticus in the Old Testament uh, where God uses that term to describe himself, Jehovah M. Kadesh. But we're going to start um, in Romans chapter 7. Okay, here we go. Verse 14. Hey, by the way, just an aside, if you don't have a passage to read in your quiet time, saturate yourselves in Romans chapter 7 and Romans chapter 8. Two of the most rich, pregnant with gospel beauty uh, uh, chapters in the entire Bible. Just incredible. And I wish I could preach all through them, but that would be a Mississippi State sermon, so I'm not going to do that today. Okay. Uh, (laughs) Verse 14, Romans 7. For we know that, this is the Apostle Paul, we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin, for I do not understand my own actions. And then he gets all doctor Jekylly with us right here. Look what he says. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, I'm simultaneously a little disturbed and mainly comforted by what I just heard the Apostle Paul say right there. Here's why I'm comforted by that. Because if if there's ever been someone who epitomizes the definition of super-Christian, it would be the Apostle Paul, would it not? I mean, he's a guy who was a powerful evangelist, uh, a powerful missionary, an incredible church planter, wrote two-thirds-ish of the New Testament. I mean, if there is a such thing as a super-Christian, it is the Apostle Paul. And what he has just said is, the, the Bible has just said is the, the super-Christian apostle, uh, apostle Paul is acknowledging the same issues that you and I both have. He's saying, I struggle with the same... I hear you. Like sometimes the Mr. Hyde part of me pops out at times that I don't want him to. And it seems like as hard as I try to be Dr. Jekyll-y, Mr. Hyde just rears his ugly head. Like the Bible saying to us here that even the best of us at our core have the incredible propensity towards sin, toward hideousness now let me pause if I were to ask you in fact let me just do this don't say it out loud but just in your mind think who's the holiest most godly most like Jesus person you know don't say it out loud I know you were gonna say Scott Matthews but but just think about it okay just think about it who's the most godly person you know that person As godly and holy as they are, has an incredible propensity toward hideousness, self-centeredness, self-absorption. That's the nature of sin in our lives. And this is what Paul's talking about. Even the holiest among us, Mr. Hyde, will rear his ugly head. Now, he expands on that down in verse 21. Look what he says. He says, so I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. Now, this is where this really starts to get practical for us right here. He says, evil lies close at hand. Um, you Bible scholars in the room and online, remember in Genesis chapter 4, when Cain killed Abel. By the way, I always mix those up. Cain, Abel killed Cain. When Cain killed Abel, um, that God shows up and says to Cain that sin was, remember what it said? Crouching at the door sin was crouching at the door now what theologians point out about what Paul has just said right here is that they say that what Paul had in his mind when he wrote this verse because of the way that's phrased is he had that story And specifically, that verse, that phrase that God said to Cain, in mind. Because he uses the same phraseology. Now, this is written in Greek, the Old Testament's in Hebrew, but he uses the same phraseology. And so, basically, that word, crouching at the door, literally means to get low or to hide. And so, what God in the Old Testament, what Paul right here is saying to us, is that sin has a tendency to hide itself. We all know and acknowledge, I think all of us did, just a little bit ago, that there are gaps in our lives between where we are and where we want to be. And, and we look at those gaps, and, and we kind of know there's, there's sin and there's gaps in our lives, but we, though we know it cognitively, it often doesn't sear into our hearts and in our souls and make its way out into the way we live. And the reason for that is because we often don't think of our sin as severe as someone else's sin. We don't think of ourselves primarily as sinners. Because we're followers of Jesus and we're church people and we have our Bibles and we sing the songs and whatever it is we do, we often, the first default frame of mind for us is not that we're sinners. It's not that we're hideous and self-centered and self-absorbed like we described earlier. It's often our default is, well, primarily I'm a good person. I've just got these mistakes that I make or these things just sneak into our, my, my, my life. And so, for example, we'll say things like, you know, I'm not irritable. I just have really high standards. <laughs> or, or I'm not obsessed with my appearance and vain. I just really appreciate beauty and aesthetics. Right? Or um, I'm not manipulative. I'm just a person who knows how to get things done, right? Or, or I'm not mean, I'm just assertive. Like, let's go, let's get, and we'll, or we'll start like blaming um, the sin in our lives on personality types. Well, I'm just an eight on the Enneagram or whatever it is, you know? And we'll start blaming stuff. And what that is is us rationalizing the sin in our lives and thinking that our stuff is not as severe as other stuff that's out there. And so what Paul's point here is, The biggest issue in our life is not external. The biggest issue in our life is internal. It's not external. The biggest issue is it's not your jerk of a boss. And right like what your boss did doesn't give you the right to to say what you said or do what you did. Well, you don't know what he did to me. It doesn't matter. (laughs) The biggest issue in your life is not external, it's internal. The biggest issue in your life is not an overbearing spouse. The biggest issue in your life is not your gossiping friends. The biggest, listen, the biggest issue in your life is not the government. Hello. The biggest issue of your life is the sin that is hiding, that is crouching at the door, that's getting low, that's hiding in your life, and that we're simply not acknowledging. And so, look what Paul says. Go back from uh, that verse, back to verse 16. Look what he says. Now, if I do what I do not want... I agree with the law that it's good. I'm going to come back to that verse in a second. Hold on to it because it is power packed. So now it's no longer I who do it, but it's the sin that dwells within me. Verse 18. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have, listen, the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. Now, what Paul has just said here is he's actually, he's saying, okay, when, when maybe let's get to the point where we do acknowledge our sin. And when we finally get to the point where we're not hiding it, where we're acknowledging it, the problem is that what we often do is we have a propensity then to try to fix our stuff ourselves by using the law, by trying to do enough stuff and not do enough bad stuff. We have the propensity, all of us, the natural inclination to attempt to sanctify ourselves. To make ourselves holy in other words we look at God and Jesus and the gospel and we think man it's kind of like the runway it's like the runway at the beginning of the Christian life like I need the gospel I need Jesus to enter into the kingdom of God to become a Christian and then you know kind of fly you know on autopilot and then whatever happens in the air that's really up to me to fix but then also, the gospel is like the runway on the back end. I need it to land in heaven one day when I die. We often think of God as. Uh, the the runway on either end of the Christian life but what Paul's pointing out in this whole passage is that no no no, God is not the runway he's the jet fuel that propels everything in the Christian life you don't fix yourself you don't sanctify yourself you have Jehovah M. Kadesh the Lord who sanctifies the gospel is not just for becoming a Christian it's not just for um, you know uh, salvation and glorification one day the gospel is also for sanctification for making you holy But we all have the propensity to try to do it ourselves and see the gospel as merely a runway. And so um, I think there are three primary ways we do this. And if you write anything down, you you can write these down. The first way, primarily, that I think we often try to fix ourselves, to sanctify ourselves, is what I would call activism. Activism, and very simply, that's uh, basically believing the lie that if I do enough good for other people, then that proves to God and to others and to myself that I really am a good person. And so we'll spend time in mid-flight activism, 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 trying to do enough good, do enough good. And and what the Bible's pointing out here is that that's a lie. In fact, in his book, uh, How People Change, Paul David Tripp says good book by the way how people change by paul david tripp he says the problem with activism is it says the evil outside of us is greater than the evil inside of us so so activism doesn't work to sanctify you it never will it wasn't meant to Um, activism flows or, or service to god and to others flows out of the gospel flows out of sanctification in our life it doesn't sanctify us it flows out of us becoming like christ in our life and this is why paul in second corinthians 5 would say so we're compelled by love we're compelled by the gospel to to do good things okay activism doesn't work neither does religious formalism that's the second one religious formalism um you're probably like me i've often heard people say things like well man i wish they would just get in church we just need to get them in church then right? Like, just get him. I have a cousin down in Alabama uh, who, he, he runs after all kinds of things that aren't the Lord. He runs stiff arms of the Lord, runs far away from the Lord. And I've often heard other family members who are Christians say, man, we just need to get him in church. And th- though I understand the sentiment of that, just getting him in church and sort of creating this religious formalism in his life will not make him less that stuff and more like God, more sanctified. More holy. In fact, um, I was thinking about that this week, and I thought about a guy that was in a church that I served about 15 years ago. I was associate pastor at a church down in Alabama, and um, there was this guy in our church who uh, years ago had been a raging alcoholic. Um, And when he would drink, he would get really mean. And when he would get really mean, all of that toxicity would spew out on everybody in his life, and it caused all kinds of tension in his job, and his family, and his whole life. And eventually, um, he was like, "Man, I." I can't do this anymore. And so he ended up coming to the church that I was a part of and, um, said a prayer one day and all of a sudden started dressing differently and started carrying a big, gigantic King James version Bible with tabs and a little like a coffee table Bible to church. And I mean, er everything was, everything was different on the outside. The appearance was different. He even worked his way into some degree of church leadership. But I remember very often being in meetings with him because of my role at the church. And, uh, his role in church leadership, and man, he, he was always very domineering in those meetings. Very controlling, very short-tempered, uh, very skeptical of everything. In fact, one day, I remember being in my office. It was on a Monday, and uh, it was a, after Sunday, and my office bordered, or whatever, the conference room, which was next door to my office. It was next door neighbor. And so I was sitting in my office, uh, facing that wall, working on my computer, and I could hear him very loudly in the conference room next to me, just railing on our senior pastor. And this was the kind of stuff that spewed out of him all of the time. And so the reason I tell you all of that story is because that is an example of Someone who had religious formalism in his life, but didn't deal with the, didn't allow Jehovah M Kadesh, the God who sanctifies, to deal with the real issue. See, the real issue in his life was not the alcohol, the bad stuff, ish. It wasn't the, the the alcoholism in his life. It and it wasn't just getting rid of that and doing more good stuff and looking the part and trying to shape up a little bit. It wasn't all of that. The real issue was that he had a real need to control things. The alcoholism was smoke from the fire. The fire in his heart was that when life spun out of control, that he felt like he had to control it. And so he was bowing at the altar of the idol of control. That was the real issue. And he didn't bring that before the Lord in real repentance and allow God, Jehovah, uh, Kadesh, the God who sanctifies, to deal with that stuff. And so what happens is, always when we think religious formalism works to sanctify us, it, what hap- always happens happened in his life. Here's what happened. When we don't deal with the real issue and bring that before the Lord to sanctify it, what happens is that that thing will, though it may look different, it will always mutate and manifest as something a little more hideous, a little more ugly. That's the same thing, it just looks very different. And that's exactly what happened in his life. He didn't allow Jehovah M. Kadesh, the God who sanctifies, to sanctify the real issue. He just worried about religious formalism. Next, not only religious formalism, but also consequence avoidance. That's the third way. We try to fix ourselves with the law of God. We try to sanctify ourselves. Consequence avoidance. Um, A few years ago, a couple came into my office, and their marriage was in real trouble. Uh, And I could tell the minute they walked in, just their body language, man. I mean, you've probably seen that kind of thing before. Their body language was, they did not want to be there together. And uh, so they walk in, and she sits on this side of the little table we were in, and he sits on this side, and I'm kind of in the middle playing the tennis match thing. And, um, and so she launches in to how angry he is. And he launches right back her at her very aggressively. And she's telling me, Chris, see, this is what he does all the time. He's angry all the time, and he yells at me, and he cusses at me, and he yells at the kids. And, and then she turned to him, and she stood up, and she said, I'm done. I'm leaving. And instantly, he changed. Instantly, his body language shifted from aggressive and leaning forward. You can always kind of tell what somebody's feeling by their body language. From leaning forward to sinking in his chair, and he started to cry. And the whole rest of the conversation, he cried. And their marriage got a little bit better, and I'd see him holding hands at church, and, man, you guys, luck, you're doing great, it's awesome. And then it would stir back up again. And then they get a little bit better, then it'd stir back up again. They come back in and get a little bit stir back up. And then eventually that happened on a cycle three or four times. And eventually she left and they got divorced. Here's what the real issue that was going on in their marriage. See, what was happening with him was not real repentance. It was not allowing the God who sanctifies to sanctify. See, what he was doing is he was just trying to avoid consequences. It was it was consequence avoidance. He wasn't repenting. He was afraid that he would be alone. He was afraid of the embarrassment of being the reason that his marriage had ended. He was afraid of the consequences, and he felt bad for those, and he felt sorry for those. But it wasn't real repentance that gets to the core of the issue and allows Jehovah M. Kadesh, the God who sanctifies, to deal with the heart of the real issue. So so we often try to fix ourselves several different ways, and that's what all of these have in common. But look what verse 16 says. It says, now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it's good. Okay, let me paraphrase what Paul's saying here. He's saying, if we try to fix ourselves, in other words, we see the gospel as the runway, not the jet fuel, and we try to do all the stuff ourselves to sanctify ourselves with the law, The law is no good for that. But in this verse, he says, if I I do what I do not want, then that makes the law good. What in the world does that mean? What he's saying is that the law is like a mirror. That's what it was meant to be. It was never meant to be a set of rules that we all follow. The law of God was meant to be a mirror that we look at and we go, that is a picture of what holiness looks like. And we look at that, and then we look at us and we go, man, I've got a long way to go. The, gospel, or the, the law is a mirror. It's not a set of rules. And so what Paul's saying here is that when we see it as a mirror, not a rule book, it's good, because what it does is it says to us how wretched we are, how, how big of a gap there is between where we are and where we want to be. And basically he's saying, And because that gap is so wide, I can't sanctify myself. I cannot fix the problems that I have. I can never follow all the rules the way I need to follow the rules. I can't. It's impossible. So back in Leviticus chapter 20, this is why God says who he is. Basically, this is the very same concept that Paul's unpacking here. God has just now given his people the law he's in the process of explaining all of the different things that make up the law. And here's what he says in Leviticus chapter 20, verse 7. Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am the Lord your God. Keep my statutes and do them. And it's almost like God himself is creating a paradox, like an emotional sort of hook that the person hearing that would go, whoo, that is a lot of stuff. There's no way I can do that. And God goes, Exactly. And then look what he says after the comma. Exactly. And here's the good news. But I'm the Lord who sanctifies. I'm Jehovah M. Kadesh. I'm the Lord who sanctifies you. Now, all the way back uh, to Romans chapter 7. Look at verse 24. Look what he says. Paul says about himself. Wretched man. I love this verse. Wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Here's why I love this verse. Wretched, in the original language in Greek, is a military term, and it's used to describe soldiers who had just returned from battle. Now, picture a movie where you've seen soldiers coming back from battle, and you see people on stretchers, and there's bandages and blood, and you know there's there's limbs maybe severed, and people are tired and exhausted and sweaty, and their clothes are dirty, and uh, their, their clo- clothes is, their clothes are dirty, and uh, just so picture this scene. That's the idea of wretched. Paul saying, I'm tired. I'm exhausted. I'm weary. I'm worn. I'm beaten. I'm bloody. I- I've tried so hard. I've given everything I can to try to do good stuff. I- and I just can't do it anymore. I'm tired. I'm exhausted. I'm worn out. I'm beaten. I'm fighting a battle that I cannot win. And what he says at the end of the passage is, who will deliver me? He's saying, I'm fighting a battle I can't win, and I need somebody to fight it for me because I cannot win it by myself. And then in the very next verse, he says the most beautiful words in the entire Bible. Look, verse 25, but thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. You know what he's saying? He's saying, I can't fight the battle. I can't win the battle myself. I can't sanctify myself. But Jesus does it for me. He's the jet fuel. He's not just the runway on either end. And that's why in uh, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21, Paul says this. He says, For our sake he made him to be sin, Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Let me rephrase, so that we might become sanctified. What Paul's saying here is that Jesus did something so that we might become sanctified. That God, Jehovah M. Kadesh, orchestrated events for Jesus to do something so that we might be in Kadesh, sanctified. So what did he do? Well, the passage tells us. He became sin. he who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. Theologians call that verse the great exchange. The great exchange. That's the theological term for that verse. And, and what they're saying is that on the cross, what Jesus was doing is Jesus was becoming Mr. Hyde in your place. Listen. Jesus did not just die for your sin. He did not just die for your sin. He became your sin. He embodied your sin. And so on the cross, maybe you're here and and you were an adulterer or you were a thief or you were a liar or you were an alcoholic or, or whatever the thing is. Jesus didn't just die for that. Jesus literally, the Bible says, became an adulterer on the cross. He became an alcoholic on the cross. He, he became a thief on the cross. Jesus was becoming our sin so that he could pay the price for it for us. That's what Jesus was doing on the cross. And so, what he's doing is he's becoming Mr. Hyde in our place so that he would take on our judgment day for us and exchange for us our sin for his righteousness. Our battle that we are weary from and exhausted and beaten and severed limbs from, he exchanged our battle for his victory. He exchanged our chains for his freedom. That's what Jesus was doing on the cross. He was making a way by becoming your Mr. Hyde to sanctify you. And so you go, okay, that's cool. I kind of like all of that sounds pretty normal. Like that, you're not telling me a lot that I don't already know. Well, here's the thing. My goal in this sermon is not to tell you a whole lot of stuff that you don't know, because the reason sin still is in our lives, it's hidden, it's crouching in our lives, is not because we don't know enough stuff, it's because we don't see ourselves and God the right way. You know, Paul said, wretched man that I am, and we don't see ourselves as wretched men and women. We don't see God as God who sanctifies. We see the job of sanctification often as what we have to do. We we often don't see sin really for what it is. And so my hope in this sermon is really just to remind you uh, and me uh, of the wretchedness of our hearts and hopefully show you the beauty of what Jesus really did for you so that it stirs up your affections for him. Because when your affections are stirred for him, your affections are stirred. You see the gospel really for what it is. Your affections are stirred, and out of that, we are compelled by love. Out of that, that's when we really change. It's not because we know more stuff, it's because we see God more clearly. And we see our sin more clearly. We see ourselves more clearly, and our affections are stirred, resulting in man, God did that for me? Man, I, I can't, I want to be more like Him not because i have to because i want to because i'm compelled by jehovah uh, M. kadesh the god who sanctifies um a few years ago i heard a story of john newton and uh over i was over at mount juliet today and aaron said oh yeah the guy who invented fig newtons no different guy <laughs> a different guy john newton was the guy who wrote amazing grace And uh, he's got just this incredible story of when he was 11 years old being thrust into uh, the slave trade industry. And he he worked for some people who owned slave ships and uh, and then eventually he became owner of not just one but multiple slave ships and kind of ran his own slave trade business. And just the, the things he did to other brothers and sisters created in the image of God is hideous and horrendous. And he's got this incredible story of a praying mom who was, was just ferocious, running after the Lord and praying for him. And, uh, and eventually, the Lord used the prayers of a praying mama and captivated his heart. And he began to see his sin for what it really was, the hideousness of what he had done to other people for what it really was. And he has this radical story of salvation. And uh, near the end of his life, after he had written... Uh, amazing grace he's on his deathbed his family's around and uh they said dad john can you hear me and he could just nod and uh can you hear me do you want to say anything what do you want to tell us and he said this he said my memory is fading but i remember two things very clearly i am a great sinner and jesus is a great savior Amazing grace, how sweet the sound, who saved not a good person, not an okay person who makes mistakes, not a churchy person, who saved a wretch like me. And listen, brothers and sisters, you may have never done the hideous things that John Newton did in his life, the ferocious things toward other people, but you and I in the same way are all wretches. We're not mistakers in need of just making better decisions. We are sinners in need of a great Savior. And in Jesus, we have Jehovah M. Kadesh, the Lord who sanctifies because of what he did on the cross for us. And so today, maybe you're here and you're not yet a follower of Jesus. What the Bible says is that all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. In other words, you can't come to church enough times to get you in right standing with God. But what gets you in right standing with God is you very simply saying, like John Newton, I'm a wretch, I can't. Jesus, I need you. I need you. And so you bow your heart before him and you say, God, I I can't. Would you come into my life? Would you transform? Would you sanctify me because I can't sanctify myself? And what the Bible says is that instantly in that moment, the great exchange happens in your life. He exchanges your sin for his righteousness. Maybe you're here and you're a follower of Jesus but you've had this sin that just nagging. You're trying your best, but you've got this nagging sin. Maybe you're here and you're a follower of Jesus, and you go, man, you're right. I've primarily seen myself as a good person. Listen, if that's you, would you be reminded today? My prayer for us is that God would give us the grace to be reminded today of the wretchedness of our hearts and the beauty of our Savior, Jehovah M. Kadesh. And when we realize those things, we can't help but be more and more sanctified and look more and more like Jesus. It is a natural outflow of our understanding of the gospel and our affections toward our good, great Savior, Jehovah M. Kadesh. Okay, So here's what we're going to do. We're going to pray. Dan's band's going to come back. And uh, after we pray, man, if in your heart you're going, man, I, 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 need, I need the grace of God for my affections to be stirred once more. I need the grace of God to see myself as the sinner that I am. The, like Paul said, the wretch that I am. I need that. Uh, that'll be your time to respond, to bring that before the Lord, and just, just, tell, just tell the Lord. Okay? And let's respond as we worship together, as though, like John Newton, we are great sinners who have a great Savior, because we are. All right, let's pray. So right now, all across this room, If you're here and you go, man, I need my affections stirred again. I need the grace of seeing myself for who I really am. Would you right now just lift up your hand? God, I need you to show me again, remind me, or maybe for the first time, who I really am. Just lift up your hand so I can see you pray for you. Awesome, thank you. Awesome, 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 awesome. Awesome. Put your hands back down. Thank you awesome see God brothers and sisters all across this room maybe even worshiping online are acknowledging their need for Jehovah M. Kadesh the God who sanctifies and so Father would you be that for them in this for us in this moment right now God would you give them an extra portion of your grace to, to though they may be beaten and battered Tired and weary from the battle, to remember the beauty of Jesus who went to the cross to fight the battle for them, so that they would be sanctified, made holy, made like Jesus. So, Father, we love you. Would you, as we leave this place in a bit, and as we go do our normal stuff that we do on Monday through Saturday next week, would you help us to walk in the reality that we are great sinners who have in Jesus a great Savior, Jehovah Imkadesh, the Lord who sanctifies. In Jesus' name, amen.